time and your insights. The topic today is modern day management. Um, and you guys have both been around a while. You have very eclectic businesses and you have different practices in some ways, um, as well as management structures. Can you, Dance Gavarka, start us off talking a little bit about your history? Fantastic. Um, this all started a really long time ago. Uh, you know, a chef-driven concept. I'd say it started probably when Alex was 15 washing dishes back in Racine, Wisconsin. At that point, I'd already known him for seven years of my life. We met when we were about eight. Um, I watched his career progress and these projects take on, taken on over the years. Um, he worked for a lot of different chefs and never really had much of a vision of opening his own restaurant um, until a friend of his that we grew up with together um, made it pretty well as a major league soccer player and said, hey, Alex, you know, I've been going to your restaurants every time I'm in town. You should be doing this for yourself. And if you ever get the opportunity, I'll help you. Uh, so there's a real humble approach here. Not a lot of background money to enter anything like this. As a matter of fact, zero. Um, he had a restaurant opportunity back in 2007 that he took on. It was a little neighborhood restaurant on 6th Avenue in Denver. Um, took over the space. We had friends and family there washing the walls and scraping grease off the side of the ovens. Um, and he opened Fruition Restaurant that year. The first few years, every single day, uh, Alex was there six days a week, dinner service only. Um, really wanted to connect with the neighborhood and provide a, a really great cultured experience with delicious dining, uh, focus on every single ingredient. Uh, he considers it creative comfort food. So it's pretty simple. There's not foams and not a lot of tweezer art on top of the food. It's a real humble approach to the food. And Really got a great representation from the neighborhood. Um, got a lot of repeat clientele, people with standing reservations. Actually, we have a couple of signature dishes that have been on the menu for 11 years now. And the reason is because the neighborhood uh, ultimately said you can't take these off the menu. Um, we do about 10 meals or 10 menus a year. We actually just made our 100th menu because we've been numbering them since 2007. Um, after a couple of years of just busting his rump over there and being there every single day, he wanted to extend the education basis and learn more. Um, you know, he'd been working with purveyors, he's been producing food, but uh, he wanted to really get his hands in the dirt a little more, literally. So he bought a 10-acre farm down in Larkspur back in 2009. Uh, it was an opportunity for many things. It was an opportunity to, to plant a seed and watch it grow. It was an opportunity to play with animals and watch animal husbandry. Um, you know, we raised large black pigs. We've got some sheep on the farm. We've got a llama. We had chickens. We had a couple goats at a time. You know, we have greenhouses and hoop houses, and we produce all types of produce. All kinds of things happen down there. But the great opportunity, one of them that I am really super proud of, is he always had his chefs in the kitchen four days a week, and they would be able to spend one day a week down at the farm, working down on the farm that the restaurant literally supported. Um, farms, you're never going to make money, but the restaurant did pretty well. It got pretty good representation from people. So he had the opportunity to try to create and do something a little different and not buy everything that he's making. Um, that, that was a few year process, but right off the bat, he, uh, you know, we live in the land of lamb and he always found it interesting that when he'd go to restaurants, a lamb dinner would be topped with goat milk feta. And it never made sense. If you go to Europe, there's sheep milk cheeses everywhere. Sheep milk cow cheeses, sheep milk goat cheeses. It's the cheese of royalty. So um, his sous chef at the time, Jimmy Warren, he's probably been with us for about eight years, um, joined this venture with him and they started Fruition Farms Creamery. Uh, it's Colorado's only artisanal sheep creamery where we make, a, I think, five or six sheep milk cheeses from a fresh cheese to an aged raw milk cheese. Uh, we make sheep skier which is a really beautiful yogurt um for those of you that don't know a lot about sheep milk it's much more easily digestible has five times the butter fat of cow's milk uh it's delicious so working down there for a few years again things happen pretty slow in our in our process um i've known alex since i was eight years old he knew something else would come about and we started having a conversation about me joining the team there was an operational position, somebody to help with human resources, somebody to help with, you know, vendor alignments and, 
and the landlord relationships and somebody to look over the bank accounts when it comes down to it. Um, I'm a son of a 32 year old or 32 year uh, retired math teacher. So I, the numbers became pretty swift. So I literally just picked up QuickBooks and started doing his farm finances. And then a couple of years later, I um, brought RSI in and I did all the finances for fruition. And this was all kind of happening with the respect of us opening this larger concept. And the concept that he came up with was a market restaurant combo. Um, it, was based, it was based on uh, providing a forum to really pay homage to the purveyors and the producers out there that he's worked with for so long. Um, highlight things from our farm and our creamery. So we opened Mercantile Dining and Provision down at Union Station in 2014. Um, it's a beast. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. We open at 7 a.m. Uh, breakfast is a really European-style breakfast. We make our own um, vinoiserie, croissants, muffins, scones. We do croque madame on house-made brioche. Lunches are chef-crafted sandwiches where we braise and cure our meats. Um, really beautiful salads and dinner. We have this really great exposed kitchen. You can see everything all the way to the dish pit. So this whole exposed quality of trying to bring out the restaurant into the dining room, teach our cooks even another skill. Uh, a lot of cooks and restaurants are stuck in a back room and they're not able to ever work on a hospitality. So it gives these people, because they're literally chopping and working right on the expo counter or right on the chef's pass that turns into the chef pass at night. And, being in Union Station, it's a real transport hub in Denver. Uh, we get a lot of traffic. People ask a lot of questions, and the chefs get to look up and actually turn them on to the things that they're working so hard to do. Um, after a couple of years there, we couldn't make enough croissants to make it past 9 o'clock in a day. So he never thought he'd have a farm, never thought he'd have a restaurant, never thought he'd own a bakery. Um, we bought a building. We created this business called Food Mill. It's a partnership with uh, Keegan Gerhardt and Lisa Bailey, two really amazing pastry chefs who have D-Bar Denver um, in, in Denver. And it was an opportunity to work with a colleague that he'd highly respected for some time. And Keegan's approach on sweet and Alex's expertise in savory, putting those together. So we now have a bakery as well that delivers these fresh pastries to Mercantile in our restaurants every day as well as we have a couple strategic partnerships out there. We deliver to seven Whole Foods markets and we have a wholesale because um, once again, the restaurant can't just support that. So we have to look outside and try to find another, uh, another area for revenue. Um, one thing that I find really unique about what we do is all of these concepts, uh, there isn't two of one. They're all very, very unique. They're all different. They all provide a different resource to our restaurants and they provide a different educational base to our staff. It gives people an opportunity to, one of our employees, if they're interested in learning vinoiserie, they could go over to the bakery and work with them. If they wanted to get down and put their hands in curd, uh, they could go make some ricotta down at the farm. Um, the restaurant business is tough work. Uh, these people come in every day and hammer it, and this is an opportunity for them to expand their mind a little bit and maybe develop another passion. Then you're not hiring a server that's just there to serve or a cook that's just there to be a line cook. Um, and also all these businesses kind of help support each other in, in a way because they all, uh, they all provide different things to each other. That's a great evolution, it's a great story. And again, because I've worked with you personally for so long, congratulations on the James Beard. I was dancing around my kitchen Monday night. Thank you. Could not have been more excited for you. And Alex. Um, all righty. So maybe we have the same question. We'll go to Josh, give us a little bit of background and history on the Rio group. Sure. Um, thanks, Dan. Uh, love hearing about uh, fruition and, and mercantile and your side projects. Super interesting. And uh, we're big fans. Um, the Rio, uh, not a totally different beginning, you know, um, started out in 1986. Uh, three uh, friends from Houston, Texas, two of which were twin brothers. Uh, and their best friend who grew up together uh, find themselves in Fort Collins, Colorado, and really missing uh, the home cooking they grew up with, uh, which is Houston-style Tex-Mex cuisine. Um, they uh, had a girlfriend who was willing to let them max out her credit card, and they found a little spot on College Avenue in Fort Collins, opened uh, 
spent the, everything on that credit card, opened, and uh, thankfully had a very good margarita recipe and kind of instant uh, success and notoriety. Fort Collins was, was definitely hankering for some Tex-Mex in 1986. Um, uh, we were able to pay her back and uh, open the second Rio in Boulder in 1989, three years later. Um, we opened another Rio in 1996, uh, so you can see a seven-year gap. Um, the Rio is, you know, Colorado company. Uh, it's been uh, grown slowly and very deliberately uh, over the years. Um, and then opened up the Denver Rio, uh, which is um, in Lodo in 1999. Um, at that point, the, the twin brothers, the two uh, founding partners, uh, decided they kind of had, you know, uh, had their fill, wanted to explore some, some other things in life. And they sold to their um, other founding partner, Pat McGochran. And Pat became the, the sole owner of, of the Rio at, at that point. Um, Pat continues to be our owner. Um, so we have an owner founder uh, who's still with the company. Uh, we opened a restaurant in 2002 in Steamboat Springs, um, which we've subsequently closed in 2014, but gave it a, a long run up in the ski town. Uh, we opened one in Park Meadows uh, Mall area in 2004, uh, Frisco in 2014, and we have uh, a sister company uh, called Rare Italian that we also opened in, in 2014, uh, which is a, a take on uh, Northern Italian cuisine with an emphasis on dry aged meat. Uh, so we are kind of uh, uh, the same uh, as, a, as the fruition mercantile group in the sense that uh, we uh, found something we loved, kind of kept at it, um, and We've, we've kind of grown up into this 32-year-old uh, mature restaurant group. And along the ways, we've had our trials and tribulations, and we've, we've had, you know, big changes. Um, so we've we found a way to do things over the years, and uh, looking forward to kind of sharing that with the group. Um, myself, I started in 2002 um, as a busser at the Boulder Rio, and I've been a, a manager, a general manager, kind of an operations specialist and um, had the opportunity to become the controller title um, about four and a half years ago. And uh, at that point, I was the one who implemented RSI for the Rio as we kind of changed our, our corporate structure, made it much leaner um, and really took those resources that we were throwing toward an administration and gave them back to the stores um, and resourced the, the GMs in a new way, made that job uh, kind of the preeminent position in the company and um, have been living kind of that success of, of those changes ever since. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Josh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And Dan, too, we'll talk a little bit more about that today. So I want to kind of highlight some of the topics that we're going to discover or discuss in a little bit better detail today. We're going to look at the kind of two different styles of management structure. Um, and not to say that any one is better or, or different or better or worse than the other, uh, just as a way to say that we're, we're going to kind of find a, a two different ways to get to one end result that's very similar. Uh, second, we're going to talk a little bit about how you run management meetings based on two different management type of teams, and then really talk about training, hiring, retaining, and finding great staff. So that's kind of the main goals. Josh, I'm going to start with you a little bit. Uh, when it comes to your management structure, can you just kind of lay out how you, uh, you know, kind of some basics on how you structure those management teams at the store level? Sure. So under the leadership of our CEO, Jason Barrett, who came on uh, about eight years ago, um, we took kind of a hard look at our, our management structure and start starting with the headquarters specifically. We used to have a very large uh, corporate headquarters with you know five full-time HR people, accounting team of three people, two full-time IT people. Um, and so when we made this conscious effort, we, we really elevated um, the GM position and, and said that that's, everything kind of uh, lives and dies with, with the GM. You know, we want to treat them um, as, store owners, so to speak, and ownership mentality and instill that in them and we want to resource them better. So we have kind of a traditional, I'd say, restaurant um, structure, but it all starts with the GM. Uh, they're, they're very um, strategically uh, placed individuals. They're in the right markets. 
Um, and they don't turn over. They have very, very little turnover at the GM position. Um, and below them, we, we put uh, an assistant GM who's really the salary manager and it's uh, kind of focused on the front of the house. And then we have a kitchen manager who's you know at, this, at the same level as the AGM just on, on the back of the house. Depending on the size of the store, we then have um, what we call salary managers or front of house managers um, below the AGM that are, are full-time salaried. A big store will have two. Um, a smaller store may only have one. And then below the kitchen manager, we have an assistant kitchen manager, also salaried full-time people. A big store will have two, a smaller store will have one. Um, and then below that, we have what we call shift managers or kitchen captains, depending whether it's the front or the back of the house. Um, this position is more entry level, and it's kind of our, our test pool to see if someone is, is manager, um, has manager potential and can and thrive in, in that environment. Uh, I think we all know as, as restaurant tours that um, your best bartender all of a sudden gets tapped to be the next manager, and they're not necessarily the best person to fill that role. Uh, leadership is hard, and you got to want to do it. So um, we have kind of a, an area where we can bring them on an hourly role. They never uh, get the keys to the Ferrari, we like to say, uh, meaning they're, they're never, they might be one of the managers on duties, but they're always supplemented by one of the salary managers. So they can get their feet wet, have a backup there, see if it's for them. And then in an ideal world, um, these, these shift managers um, become the next salary managers and eventually become the next AGM or KM or GM. Great, thank you. And Dan, kind of the same uh, same type of question towards you. Will you describe a little bit for me how the management team is structured at, let's use Mercantile as one of the examples there. Yeah, it's pretty, fruition's a pretty simple setup over there. You got a couple of managers around the front and a chef and a sous in the back. But for Mercantile, you know, we opened about three and a half, almost four years ago now. Uh, we started with four front of house managers, um, a chef and chef de cuisine and two sous chefs. Um, you would think that's a lot, but when you open at seven o'clock in the morning and everybody's going home at 1.30 at night, um, it really proved that it wasn't enough. After about a year and a half, we realized that the whole conversation of taking a jump with us out of the gate, you know, like making a sacrifice with us and helping us get this thing going uh, is so important. You know, people weren't able to get days off. Um, we were just trying to survive, get through the day-to-day -day basis, and that goes to, for every single person that worked there. We we're all stretched. Our cost of goods sold and our expenses were all quite high um, because everybody had to wear so many hats. Four managers to cover a 16, 17 hour day period um, when you're doing a couple hundred dinners at night and you know a few hundred lunches, it's, it's quite an ask. So we had to think of a way to do things better um, and we had to invest ultimately. Um, we currently have, if you take our two bar leaders and consider them into our, our leadership team, we have a group of a management team over there of probably about 13 or 14 people now. Uh, we added one Sue, um, but part of this investment in bringing on this additional payroll, uh, it was also to try to define people's job responsibilities based on their passions and what they were skilled at. Um, we were asking people to wear less hats um, we don't actually have a general manager. We don't have anybody with that title. We have a service director. We've got an assistant manager who's a SOM. We have a wine director. We have a beer director. Uh, we've got a bar director. Um, we've got a, a leader over in our coffee program. Um, we've got a market director who's a cheese curator. So we kind of put people into their wheelhouse. And, um, and the only way we we're going to be able to pay for that and make sense um, was to essentially establish some programs to bring down the cost of goods sold in each of those categories and, and align them with an individual member's responsibility. Oh, okay. So on that topic, I'm just listening to how much leadership you have within the restaurant. What's a manager meeting look like? How do you define who's responsible for the goals, especially around cost of goods? How does everybody get to say, what is, what's the frequency of your meeting look like? How does that go? Yeah, well, we run manager meetings off-site at our bakery. We have a little office over there. 
Um, we bring all of our managers over together. We do this for all of the businesses. We hold a weekly manager meeting. Um, these weekly manager meetings through that period of survival there, they would, they would last two and a half, three hours. And uh, we've gotten them down to a good hour, hour and a half now. But what our manager meeting bases on, uh, we, we end it with a little round table where everybody has two or three minutes to highlight, a, highlight a, an employee's great things they're doing at work or an accomplishment even that they're having outside of work, um, discuss a management technique that might have to be used in a correction with something that's happening with our team. Um, but 90% of our meeting is based on culture. Uh, we, we discuss how our interaction is with the guests. We discuss and we constantly make sure that everybody is in tune with what our intention is. That starts with Chef Alex Seidel, uh, what he wants to be relayed, um, the fact that we're a value-driven restaurant, the fact that we want people to come in and not feel like they're sold to, that we're, we're making these great things, and how do, we, how do we make them available to people and talk about them without saying, would you like some fries with that, you know? Um, that's not really our jam. We want to um, more, you can deliver a pastrami sandwich from any place and put it in front of people, but when you hear that it's smoked for nine days and we, you know, we, we well, sorry, it's cured for nine days and we smoke it in our ovens and, you know, it's a special recipe and we do it with Brussels sprout slaw instead of coleslaw and instead of using Thousand Island dressing, you know, we chop up our bread and butter pickles that we make in the market and we mix them in an aioli, you know, like, kind of like that wine thing like I, I'm not a great wine drinker but somebody gives me a glass and they tell me to, it's gonna taste like blackberries and river water it's gonna taste like blackberries and river water I wouldn't have picked that up you know so um, the essence of what we do and the support of the drive um, of our team and the production in the back of the house it's really important that our front of the house can um, translate those things to the guest um, I'd say that's number one and uh, number two is literally hospitality begins within. We can't expect people to come in and be hospitable to our guests unless we literally start being hospitable to each other. Um, we took the word staff out of our language. We took the word employee out of our language. Um, we use team, we use family. Um, I really think that, well, I'm the HR guy. I, 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 I'm honored to say that I have an opportunity to represent that to our team at least a couple days a week. Represent the fact that I appreciate them as part of my family and I'm there to help them. Uh, we have three owners that are all available by cell phone any day of the week. I actually don't even call us owners, we're operators. We're in the restaurants every single day and working in the restaurants with people um, to help making sure that the, uh, the train stays on the tracks. Um, Financially, uh, my other responsibility, Alex always felt like we set up the business correctly. And if we stick to these intentions, and if we provide this great level of hospitality to people, and if the kitchen folks and our team in the kitchen are truly trying to utilize this great product and truly caring for what they do in the back of the house, the financials will make sense because the business was set up for it to make sense. Um, so I am in charge of the financial. I do throw little red flags up every now and then. If I see something askew, if I see the AP isn't being caught up, thank God for RSI. A little shout out to you guys. I know that's not what this is about, but before you guys, I, I would call out my financial three or four months after it happened. Um, generally by Wednesday or Thursday of the next week, I can see what happened and I can ask the person, what's going on? Why is this elevated? Why is our cost of goods so good? You know, if you want to stay on track, we need consistency. So it's individual conversations with people pertaining to their individual responsibility. And then once a quarter, we spend 30 minutes and we break down the P&L in front of everybody. But all of our managers have access to RSI. All of our managers do the invoicing and the receiving of goods. They all have exposures to the things they're purchasing and the impacts that it has on our financial. Um, it's an opportunity to take a cook and, and build a, the next great young chef or take a front of house manager and possibly build an amazing GM that could run this restaurant in a general manager style where they're with everybody. But we haven't found that place for us yet um, because honestly, the day-to-day -day basis is just too damn demanding. 
to try to have somebody oversee all of those things. So we kind of separate the responsibility and, and our manager meetings are seriously just about caring for the business and making sure we're staying on track uh, with our culture and approach. It's really cool, and it does it does absolutely shine. If everyone's ever been to Mercantile, it does come through in that way. Josh, you mentioned something a little bit ago about how the the management, so the the general manager, really becomes a true business owner. That you kind of uh, you know, cohesively as an executive team made a decision to uh, to kind of put the resources back in the general manager's hands. How does their role then, and, and maybe the subsequent roles beneath them, how do their management meeting structures go? How do those, uh, how do those meetings happen, and who leads those, and, and how do they uh, help delegate tasks and look forward as they're running their businesses at the general manager level? Yeah, absolutely. A uh, little bit different. Um, so we have a weekly – the executive team at, at the Rio is, is very small. Um, the CEO, the COO, myself, and the director of Food and Bev – and our facilities director sit down um, every Thursday and we look at the financials um, every week and, and kind of gauge how, how we're doing uh, every week. After this uh, weekly fiscal meeting, um, we have a standing GM meeting, which is a, like a webinar-based meeting platform where the GMs call in. And every time uh, they call in, we have a, have a different topic of discussion uh, that's geared toward their development as this uh, owner-operator uh, GM style. Uh, it might be about facilities, it might be based uh, on marketing, it might be culture, um, like Dan was saying, um, it might be HR, and uh, you know, they do all the hiring and firing at their stores, so they really need a lot of HR guidance um, from, from headquarters from time to time. It's uh, food and beverage um, a lot of the times. Um, but every time that we, we meet with them, we ask them to tell us how did their store do financially for the week. Um, and it might be the week and the period, it might be year to date, but it's, but that last week we kind of expect them to have prepared the day before um, and tell us how is their store doing? Was it up or down compared to what they predicted? What if their food cost was high? Why? What have you done to look into it? Um, wow, you sure spent a lot on China last week. Was that a one-off or did, is there a bunch of breakage? You know, so um, we, we take note of those things um, as the executive team when we meet, but we actually ask them to bring it to, to our attention um, with, with, with some background. Um, I really feel like that's, um, that expectation really has matured them as a team because it's really only something we've been doing uh, since we've been with RSI, uh, which is for four and a half years. Uh, before that, same same thing as Dan was saying, we may have gotten the financials two weeks after the period ended, so all of a sudden now we're six weeks behind when the anomaly may have occurred. And we had some some backup systems that, that sort of alerted us, but we didn't see a true blue financial um, until much later than the period end. Uh, so it's really helped us become very um, much more disciplined um, fiscally. So we have this weekly meeting. It's a standing meeting. If the GM's not there, the AGM uh, sits in for them or one of their other salary managers. And from that, um, whether we're talking about uh, something marketing related or food and bev related, the GM's responsibility is to take that and have a meeting with their management team. Uh, that occurs weekly in some of the, the RIOs or once every two weeks, kind of depending on the time of year, what's going on, what their hiring needs are. Um, a typical manager meeting uh, in the Rio is led by the GM. Uh, all the managers below the GM are asked to contribute as well and bring something to the table. Most of them have um, an area of focus, whether it's uh, they're in charge of training or they're in charge of uh, the server department, the bar department, the kitchen revenue center, uh, what have you. Uh, safety is another big one. And, uh, they have their own meeting, uh, typically without any oversight from headquarters. Uh, we will sit on in one of those meetings uh, on occasion, but uh, the GM leads those meetings as well as uh, sets up one-on-one -on -one time to meet with all of their salary managers every week. So it's it's kind of a, a lot for the GMs to do um, in terms of meetings and, and administration. So we do uh, free them up quite a bit to, um, to get these tasks done um, so they're, they're not always the manager on duty when they're in their restaurant. They, they may be there specifically for administration to get all these, these tasks accomplished. 
couple of the key takeaways that I've seen so far then, even from, you know, relatively different concepts, that regular meeting time where whatever it is, whatever those goals are to kind of get that planning going is so important. And in some cases, even uh, having multiple meetings each week, that, that regular meeting time to get the, the key things communicated is, uh, is so important, uh, regardless of concept. Uh, I also have learned that Dan Skavarka may need some assistance from Michelle and I on how to drink wine. And five percent or five times the butterfat in sheep's milk compared to uh, cow's milk. I'm learning today, so this is great. <laughs> yeah, we got you on the wine thing for sure. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So yeah, I one of the things you said earlier, Josh, that I really liked is about how you kind of have that shift supervisor or shift manager almost as a test to see, you know, is this a correct person? Are they ready to be promoted? And I loved what you said about just because of the best bartender doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the best bar leader or front of the house leader. Mm -hmm. So Dan, in relation to those statements, and I know if I asked everybody if you would prefer to hire leadership from outside versus promote internally, everybody would say that they would prefer to promote internally. But can you talk about maybe some challenges, some successes you've had, both in internal promotion and from, you know, what resources you used when you did look outside? Fantastic. I would say when it comes down to it, we would hope to not have to promote because we would hope that people would, our leadership team would always be there. Um, but again, there's other opportunities. Uh, Alex doesn't create concepts to recreate concepts. Um, the reason Mercantile was opened was because he had Chef Matt Vauder as a sous chef over at Fruition for six years. Matt was like, hey, chef, I think I need to go learn from somebody else. And Alex said to him, hey, stick around stick around, I'll create an opportunity for you. And at 30 years old, he might've been just 31, he was a partner at Mercantile Dining and Provision and he runs our kitchen over there and he's a boss. So, oh, shout out to Matt as well. And a new father. Yes, yes. He had to leave the morning of James Beard Award and catch a flight uh, at 6 a.m. to get home four hours before his wife had a baby. So they're, they're baby number two. His name's Blaze Vauder. Um, he's now my new favorite person in the world, and I can't wait to meet him. Um, but, but on a side note here, uh, we're talking about um, opportunities for growth. Over at Fruition, you know, we started with a staff of 20 people. And when Alex had his 10-year anniversary, there were still five original employees, one that had been there like two weeks after opening that um, unfortunately just moved to Minnesota. Alex's uh, assistant and our uh, PR representative and social media representative started with him as a server at Fruition, Charlene Seckler. Um, his, his cheese maker uh, started seven years ago as a sous chef. He's got two servers at Fruition still and a pool of seven servers that opened the restaurant with them 11 years ago. Um, so we do provide every opportunity to um, help people grow in their craft um, I think one of the big things is, though, if you saw a couple of these people that started in this one role wasn't necessarily the right role for them, like Josh was saying. Um, we've got a sous chef that turned into a cheesemaker. We've got, you know, a server that was our market manager and then went back to a server. We've, they evolve, and it's really important to stay connected to your family, right? And try to ask them a little more about what their interests are outside of work, what they what they really do, what their true passions are outside of on their day-to-day -day basis. If they're telling you it's all work, um, they're not telling you the truth. There's, there's other things out there. So if you can help engage them in that and help push that, it might help them in, in your organization or outside of your organization, but they're still advancing professionally, which is so incredibly important. We do look within. Um, we have a couple of servers that are now working PMs at Mercantile amongst servers that one of them uh, we, we got from Starbucks and she worked in our market. And now she, I believe she's going for a certified wine exam. Um, and she's a dinner server working amongst people that are generally, I bet, I'd say the average of the server in our dining room at Mercantile have probably been in fine dining service for 12 years. Ooh, I just said the word fine dining service. We don't like to use the word fine dining service, uh, but they're incredible servers. And we're really proud of them. So I guess that would probably be considered the upper echelon of service. So in my bad, that's, um, but yeah, we really want to engage um, our team, find out what they're doing and support them any way possible. And sometimes it literally is creating a position for them. 
Josh, I want to kind of get a little bit more of that. Um, I want to call it a divestment because you were just kind of reinvesting from an administrative perspective and that kind of corporate office level or down in back into the stores and then that general management level. Uh, what kind of change did you see organizationally? How did that happen? What were the tools that you used to get there? Talk me through that if you would, if you don't mind a little bit. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, really interesting. You know, uh, when I was uh, a young manager, um, and, and I've been in the company for 16 years. I'm kind of like, you know, we have, we have some old employees too. Like I'm kind of like middle-aged for a, a Rio employee. Um, lot, a lot of them here longer than me. Um, but uh, basically the headquarters was, was very much like, hey, you run the restaurant. Don't worry um, about the finances. We'll review those with you periodically. We just want you to, to, to run a, a good shift and, and kind of um, don't worry about certain things. Um, and that change of saying like, Hey, we kind of want you to worry about everything. Like you're, you're at the GM, you're the, the business owner. Um, we know there's a thousand things to worry about. You know, uh, Jason, our CEO has a saying that, um, it's not about doing one thing a hundred percent better. It's about doing a hundred things, 1% better. You know, we definitely try to kind of instill that mentality, um, in them. But what we found is that their awareness just increased exponentially, right? They, they all of a sudden, they, they took that challenge of like, hey, we want you to worry about um, service and hospitality and hiring and training and the financials, you know, and every line on your P&L. And they, they embraced it, you know. Um, some people are stronger numbers people than, than others. And so when those people are in those roles, we, we encourage that. Like, like all right, they're, they're doing your weekly kind of P&L review. Um, and then people who are more... Uh, a little more touchy feely, a little more uh, personnel centric. We try to create the opportunities for them to, to focus on that. And so they, they really, you know, are in charge of the, the training program. Um, so it's been very, uh, very interesting and very successful um, how we kind of di divested, if, if you want to say that, from the headquarters. Um, also, it's changed the mentality of the headquarters. You know, it is very clear to everyone who works at Rio headquarters, all eight of us or nine of us, that we work for the GMs, you know? Um, we, we are resources for the store. Um, and we try to live that, that every day. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we've done. Um, and, you know, we, we do things to try to be an employer of choice. We definitely try to hire from within. Uh, we have about 65 to 70 managers, depending on the time of year. And, we do want to provide opportunities for them to, to progress. We, we want to find people that think that hospitality is a worthwhile endeavor for their career. Um, so we try to provide opportunities for them to take on different responsibilities. Um, we encourage people to go to seminars if, if they're available. And then we really um, try to develop our GMs. Uh, we kind of were talking about this before um, when we we're preparing for these meetings, but we, we take our, our GMs on a trip every year. Um, we went to Baja, uh, Mexico last year to kind of see what the taco scene was doing um, in the Baja, California region, Tijuana and Ensenada. Well, the year before we were in San Francisco, the year before in Chicago. So um, really important for us to develop our, our teams from within and provide this uh, kind of opportunity for a career in, in with the Rio. Yeah, it's really interesting that you both really kind of find that uh, find that path to to allow people to step into things they're more natural naturally suited for and, and kind of encourage them. Michelle, do you have a follow up question there? Yeah, I was just thinking about what I know about you guys. And I know compensation is kind of the elephant in the room. We're not going to put you on the spot and talk to you about how you stay competitive from a salary perspective or a wage perspective. But I know you both employ some strategic incentive planning. Those words don't necessarily go together very well. But you know what I mean, talking about offering incentives to your employees that are a little outside the box that gives them the benefit of developing their restaurant knowledge or skill, but yet builds culture and is fun. So talk about some different, and I know that there's some similarities here, so you guys can both talk together at the same time, but tell us about some of those tactics that you have. Now start up, Josh? No, you go ahead. All right, so, um, you know, we do have, uh, when we did take on all these extra managers at Mercantile, one of our focus was to bring down that cost of goods sold program, and how are we going to do it? 
we're going to do it by incentivizing people for their categories. So our wine program, um, even though we set that bar very attainable, um, it's not driven down, um, which needs to increase our wine cost so much because the first thing is to care for the guests and the value that we're providing people. I would think that I would hope that if you came into our wine, um, our restaurant and ordered a bottle of wine, you'd say, wow, that's a little bit cheaper than down the street. Uh, that's really important to us. Um, but we do have them accountable for the cost of goods sold programs. But incentive-wise, uh, in the kitchen, you know, in the kitchen, we, we take the, um, the entire full team of full-time employees in our kitchen are available for the cost of goods sold on our food cost. It goes all the way to the dishwasher. So um, with that being said, though, I think the more important incentive could be found in our kitchen. You know, uh, working under Chef Matt Vauder day-to-day basis, the, the kid grew up playing, playing high school football. Um, he's athletic, he's super competitive, and he runs that kitchen like a coach, um, like some epic coach you would see in a movie. Like, beginning a service, he sets a, he sets a goal for the day, he sets an expectation, he talks to them about exactly how we're going to pull off service. There was a while there that it was ran in a certain way, his lineups ran a certain way that the whole, the whole kitchen team when he was done would yell, we should! and just scare the crap out of everybody in the dining room. And I think it took a few of those times, like a couple months, and Alex is like, all right, Kai, I'll shut you guys, bring it down, you know. But uh, he sets the expectation during service. Um, it's, it's constantly, every single plate that comes to the past is being looked at, it's being diagnosed, it's making sure it's exactly what we want to provide to the guest. And those interactions during service or during prep, um, they're curt. Uh, they're a matter of fact. They don't start with a please and end with a thank you. Um, it is like a coach driving his team, and the player respects the coach. And it, But the great thing is, at the end of service, they always recap, and they hug it out, no matter how hard it is during service. I would say that one of the big incentives that we provide and that we really, really strive to provide every single day is setting a climate of education and growth for people professionally. I think that way more than, if you look at somebody's resume, when they write up their resume, it doesn't say, what were you paid at this job? It says, who did you work under? What did you learn, right? And with this new, young generation that's about right now, they're not, they're not looking to sign up with, with a factory and, and develop a 32-year pension. They, they want to go somewhere, they want to learn, they want to experience, and if you're done teaching and experiencing, they're going to move on to the next place. And that goes all the way to the top of our, our service director, all the way up there. If he doesn't feel challenged on a day-to-day -day basis, just think of your work every single day. You know, for me, my work, the days that I'm easy, I didn't have a lot going on, I, I don't feel very accomplished. As a matter of fact, it brings me anxiety. The days that I just knockout check marks and I felt like I owned my job and and I learned something and I got over a hurdle those are the best days of my life at work I guess that's coming from a part owner you know because maybe I'm lucky to have that um, but that's really really important so I think hammering down the education and growth of people is incredibly important and investing in them we do a lot of things like Josh was saying I love that Josh does those trips uh, mercantile does 14, 16, probably 20 out-of-state things. We were in Delaware last month for the Meals on Wheels. Alex is doing an event in Mexico. We serve food in Chicago. And whenever he goes on these things, he brings different people. Um, though, personally, I would love to go to Mexico every time, and I'd love to go to Pebble Beach Food and Wine. He, he, he spreads it out. He brings all of his sous chefs. He brings, he brings cooks. He brings the front of house staff. Um, you know, the first big trip they took in wine education, I wasn't even invited to. Maybe it was because I told you I don't, I'm not crazy about wine. So oh, well, there you go. That you don't know the river water. That was a chance water. to get better. Yeah, that was a chance to get better. Well, that was your river water opportunity right there, Dan. Right, right. It's, uh, but he takes different people every time. It's an opportunity to, um, to really get to know them, spend time outside of work, an opportunity for them to do R&D with him. Um, they come back and present what they learned at lineups, um, so they talk about their experience. We've had a couple of shifts at our restaurant that have come out of these trips. Um, so that's a really great tool as well. 
Um, that, that takes time. I, I think a lot of the great core values you can put into um, raising an incredible team of committed people is it's kind of that hard love mentality that you have to have as a parent, right? Like your kid's not sleeping at night, bringing them into bed with you every night's not going to solve any problems. Like you have to take on the brunt. You have to put in the effort. You have to stay up night after night with your child in bed for them to learn that they have to stay in bed. And so there's kind of, it's a sacrifice that you make as a leader. And a lot of that sacrifice takes a lot of investment and, I don't feel like a lot of that investment is monetary. It's all an effort and energy um, and going home at the end of the day and thinking, what did you do? And if you were a good resource to your team, I love Josh, how you talked about how your office is a resource for your GM. Um, I, I struggle with that every single day, asking myself how, how I could be a better resource to my team, how I could give them more visibility to things that are important to them, how I could better support them on their day to day. Um, and that's our greatest uh, responsibility as leaders is we have to lead, right? Absolutely. I love it. It's, um, it's interesting to me that you both, uh, well, it's not interesting, it's evident that your passion for creating this uh, opportunity for accountability to exist in a way that is not, it's not parental like just making a rule, it's parental in, that you care about the individuals. And, and so I'm going to create this opportunity for accountability through education. I'm going to teach you. Uh, I'm going to meet you halfway. You meet me the other half in yeah. terms of giving you opportunity to grow your career and, and quit looking at it as a service job. Look at it as a, as a really honest way to go make a living and have fun doing it. And, and so that starts with both of you at the top. And uh, I love that it's it's clearly impactful uh, all the way through. Um, I know we're kind of wrapping and I don't want to cut anybody out. So Dave, Michelle, are there any last questions before uh, uh, or anything that you wanted to touch into out of these, uh, out of the panel before I, I transition over to Q&A? Um, no, I, I think we could probably to talk to, yeah, I think we could talk to these guys for a couple more hours. So let's see what questions we have. Right on, right on. Um, Thank you, uh, panelists. We'll get to that in a sec. Let me open up this Q&A business. I've got, uh, yeah, I got the first one, Denny. I'll take it. Yeah, um, go for it. Uh, Dan, I'm, or Josh, actually, I'm going to kick this one to you. Um, shifts in your management uh, roles, how has that affected the employee uh, retention at all? And if so, how? Yeah, you know, uh, change is hard. Um, when the changes were made, uh, there's a little bit of uh, teaching some old dogs and new tricks or, or, you know, adapting or, or going by the wayside a, a little bit. Um, but it's helped employee retention in the, the place we've gotten to, you know, um, we, we have very fair compensation is something that's taken very seriously. Um, it's the, the emotional side um, with the culture and that piece, but it's, but it's also making sure that people, can make enough money in the, in the tough markets that we're in, you know, being in Boulder and Denver and Fort Collins and the cost of living being driven up so quickly. Um, you know, we, we are constantly looking at that and, and how can we be uh, not only the employer of choice because we offer this experience, we offer this culture, but also do we compensate them appropriately? Um, we also have a very generous bonus structure. Um, approximately 20% of a manager's uh, salary comes from bonuses. They have uh, the potential to make 20% of their salary as bonus. And then we um, structure that bonus so that part of it is qualitative. So are they adhering to our core values? Um, and then the other part being just the performance fiscally of the restaurant in combination of how are they perceived from the outside? You know, uh, we all kind of cringe at Yelp reviews and Google reviews and, and are they fair and whatever. Um, but the customer has a say in this, you know, so that is part of, of their bonus. And really we reward them for replying to a review, you know, um, good or bad. We want the, the GMs and the managers engaged in that process so that they're responding um, and thanking the guests for, for that, that review of their experience. Um, so since, you know, this has sort of matured over the last four and a half years, um, 
our, our manager turnover is actually lower than it's been in my memory. Um, and, and we're very excited about growing the company so that we can provide opportunities going forward for these people who have been patient and sort of, you know, matured in their roles as well and are looking for the next challenge. Yeah. Um, so retention in the long run, probably in the short term, maybe had some uh, some effect on the employee retention, maybe lost some few, but that commitment to, to what you were doing and making those changes, that investment was seen by the people who were ready to step into those roles. Uh, in the long term, then, you're, you're seeing much more tenured uh, senior management. You said that minimum, minimum turnover in that general manager role and in and, and those types of roles. It's pretty fascinating to, to note by minimizing and really being there more of as a support team from the administrative level. Yeah, you know, and that's, that's what we're, we're, we're trying to accomplish. But, you know, it's a, we're, we're interested in the whole person, you know, for, for all of our management team, all, all the way down to all of our employees. Like, we're, we're concerned about their, their health, you know. We, we try to um, take, take care of them. If, if we see them, that they're working too, too much, you know, we, we try to help them dial that back. We try to resource them so they can dial that back. If they're not getting enough time with their family, that's important to us. If they're not taking care of their health, you know, like we're living in a, a culture that's, that's really driven on lack of sleep, you know, cigarettes and booze kind of a thing. Like, you know, how can we allocate um, some resources to, to help them if, if, if that's the, the issue also, you know? So we're, we're, we're interested in, in taking care of our folks to keep them around and, and, uh, or to, to provide the opportunity for them to go somewhere else and be a great, great manager. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. All right. I have another question. <clears throat> I'll put this out to both of you because I'd really like to hear the answer from both of you. If you asked your managers what single thing they like the most and least about their job, what would they say? Interesting. Um, I, I'll take a shot at it. I can pretty much stick to the to the things they like the most. Um, as I'm talking, though, maybe the others will come to me. Uh, I would say it's an opportunity to work in their craft. Um, Gabe Salazar, who runs our cheesecakes, been in the American Cheese Society for a lot of years. He's got an opportunity to work in his craft of cheeses, but also work our retail side select olive oils, select all these different things that we sell at Mercantile, uh, work with the kitchen on the meats that are cured and sold in, sold in as meat cases. Um, our wine director and our two psalms that we have on the floor, the opportunity to taste um, and experience, um, you know, the money that's available for them on a day-to-day -day basis to educate their staff is just there. It's just part of what we do. Uh, there's no questions. Um, there's nobody saying you can't crack open that bottle um, to taste the team. Uh, they also have the really great benefit of some great people to come in and drink wine that like them, so they pour a little wine off to them. Uh, the kitchen team, um, opportunity to work under Chef Matt Vauder and ultimately Alex Seidel um, to be proud of the food they make every single day. What they don't like, uh, the challenges of the job, man, you get your ass handed to you every single day. The place is busy. Um, it's hard. And if what Josh was talking about, the investment into somebody's health, how important that is, that kind of goes with that hard love thing too, because you're going to have to invest in them financially. You're going to have to give them more resources then they can take a step back. You know, all of that. If, if you don't really put the efforts into making sure people are getting a good night's sleep before they come into work the next day, there's a reason they're going to hate their job that day. So, um, but there's a saying out there that, you know, you want to hire somebody that wants to be busy, an employee that's up front or the cook in the back that is saying, you know, man, this place is far too busy. It's like, well, where do you want to work? You know, you want to work at a place that you, you don't have an opportunity to work? That doesn't make sense. Um, so I would say the biggest challenge is the day-to-day the -day grind, getting, getting through their uh, hurdles that they need to. And... Um, possibly coming in healthy every day and full of spirit. Did you say full of yeah. spirits? Yeah. Full of spirits. <laughs> yeah, our, our team's uh, definitely the thing they, they love the most about coming to work, I would say, is to hang out with one another. They are, they are teams, right? They're Team Rio. They, 
they take care of each other. It's always really inspiring to see it. They're super social uh, groups and uh, they're all in that time of their life too, you know, or these friendships they're making are, are lifelong friendships a lot of times. And um, it's really cool to see it. I know that, that that's what most of them probably look forward to when they're, they're coming in for their daily shift. Uh, I say the thing that is probably the, the thing they're least looking forward to is, is a facilities related issue. You know, uh, the Rio is um, strategically placed in um, downtowns and historical districts uh, in old buildings. And we just have a constant, you know, uh, facilities uh, challenge in, in our world. And, and uh, nothing, nothing can put the brakes on a, what was a good shift when the, other than the facility equipment related issues. So, you know, we're, we're allocating resources to them. We created a new position uh, at headquarters. Um, so someone is specifically handling our, our facilities issues on a day-to-day -day basis, like the buck stops to someone now. And um, so we're trying, but those are the two I thought of. That's, that's a great point, there, Josh. And I wonder, uh, what do you speak of these friendships and opportunity for them to hang out with each other? That's also evolved a lot in the last 15 to 20 years in the restaurant business, right? Yeah. Uh, We've got a couple of marriages out of Mercantile, and it's only been there three and a half years. Yeah. Um, you kind of want to slap them on their hand and be like, hey, man, but when people are spending 40, 50 hours there a week, they spend more time there than home. And uh, you almost have to embrace that as well. Yeah, well, we'll older, find a way, Dan. <laughs> yeah, being an older group, uh, we have not only marriages, we have children, and I think their first grandchildren. <laughs> started from a Rio relationship or, or out there. So. There's so many bad jokes I, I have queued up on that, but I'm going to hold them. We're going to ask one last question that's coming from Chicago. Again, I want to kind of get both of your feedback on this one, and then we're going to wrap up for today. I can't thank you enough both for your time, first off, and I know I'll, I'll speak for Dan and Michelle in that same regard too. Thank you both so much for your time and all the attendees for, for jumping in today. Uh, question from Chicago. Have you or do you look to other industries as ways to help you inspire uh, or train, lead, hire new employees? Have you looked at other industries as a way to, uh, to kind of uh, incorporate their values into, into stuff that you do at your restaurants? Josh, let's start with you. Yeah, other industries. I'm trying to think. You know, we definitely spend a lot of time looking at other restaurant groups. You know, we've been to restaurant trainings with Zingerman's, which is a group out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. We've uh, had Danny Myers uh, hospitality group speak to our GMs in New York. Um, but non-restaurant industries, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's pretty tricky. You know, we, uh, we operate with those fine restaurant margins, you know, so we, we can't be like a tech company necessarily and look to them. But, you know, I do think we, we find inspiration from, from those types of of environments, you know, where we kind of the, the employee is, you know, encouraged to be themselves, to, to speak up, to have an opinion. And I know that tech has a lot of that. Um, I don't know, Dan, what do you think? Other industries that well, you know, we do four different things here between the farm and the bakery and the restaurants. Right. We brought in a baker through a recruiter. Um, and that was expensive. I don't really look forward to doing that again. Um, we uh, we time and work over at the Emily Griffith School to try to try to engage with some of the students that are there. Emily Griffith School is a school that is based through um, through Eat Denver. Uh, it's a school that brings people from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds and teaches them the basics in culinary cuisine, the basic skills to work in a kitchen, um, so your chefs can literally volunteer time down there and teach a class on hospitality or on revenue or on personal financial, uh, all of these different things. You can engage with them. They have a job fair as well. Um, that's something we've done in the past. We've got a J1 visa employee from France working in our kitchen right now who's in her graduate program for hospitality in the south of France. Um, we're not filled with interns and such, but you know, it, it, the question's a great question because I, I heard something on NPR that you can research. Now you know my political background, but on NPR there was this thing that I kind of spoke to earlier with, um, with the new generation, and I am not going to say the uh, M word, um, but the young kids that are coming into uh, work here, this, this concept they have to 
learn, 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 and then move on. And it's the instant gratification that they require on a day-to-day basis. And the different techniques, you have to be able to work with them to let them know they're on track, let them know they still have got a ways to go, but you have to constantly connect with them because you're ultimately their iPhone um, it, that gives them instant gratification. Um, in this episode, it talked about uh, people looking for jobs and that they they recommended, they had a guy on there that was a, was a, um, a headhunter and he says that he recommends people that are looking for jobs to literally write the next three things they want to learn and then research industries outside of the industries they're comfortable with to see what could teach them those three things, if that's really what's going to serve them best. So, um, you know, it's a really good point. Uh, it's a great question. I love it. I think that there is an opportunity there. There's, um, there's different market segments that probably struggle quite a bit with some incredible work ethic. And, and I wonder if there is a way you can tap into that. I love it. Uh, they're, they're, look at that. We made you think today. Nah, that's fantastic. Um, really great insights. Like I said, this was a great conversation. Um, I, we've, we can't thank you enough, Josh. We can't thank you enough, Dan. Uh, both of you coming back uh, you know, from travel and whatnot. Dave and Michelle, thank you for uh, leading this panel. And um, I think that's all we have time for today for questions. So I, I'd say a round of applause for all the panelists that – uh, nice. did our first RSI digital panel. If you have any questions about RSI, please reach out to us. Uh, you can check us out on the web at restaurantaccountingservices.com. That's my plug. And with that, I bid you all farewell. Have a Thanks, great Josh. day. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks.